This is To Londoner, a podcast about New Zealanders living in London, doing London things, and generally just being awesome. I'm Michael John Oliver. When you Google New Zealand and London, one of the very first results to crop up is Rebecca Blanford's blog, Runaway Kiwi. It has become a central reading for anyone, Kiwi and non-Kiwi alike, wanting to get the most out of this pretty and pacey place. But Rebecca's blog has become more than a source of advice on where to find a flat white that doesn't suck. It's symbolic of London's incredible capacity for making a person anew. But what brought her here in the first place? I moved to London because my mum suggested it over brunch. So I was a tax accountant back home and hated it because being a tax accountant, it turns out, is a terrible life choice. Worst career ever. My mum kind of sat me down one day over brunch and said, you hate your job, you don't know what direction you want your life to go in, you should move to London. And based off that, I quit my job the next day and moved over a month later. I only thought I was going to be here for three months, literally just to figure my life out, tick that box, go back to New Zealand, um, and I've been here for six years now. So the feeling was that strong that, okay, this is actually something I need to do. So I did a semester abroad in London when I was at university and after that declared that I never ever wanted to live in London because it was a terrible place. You know, no one original would ever live in London. Um, So it was less that I had made a strong decision about moving here and more I needed to change something. And that could have been anything, but London was the one option that had appeared before me, so we took it. <laughs> but so London never really appealed? Or from your previous time here, this place didn't actually hit the spot. Why was that? I'm not quite sure. I think when I did my exchange over here, it was pre-smartphones. And so if you wanted to explore London, you kind of had the A to Z or maps printed out from Google and you would go from A to B and that was it. I kind of almost got the tourist side of London. Living here is completely different. And now that you've got smartphones, you can go in London and get completely lost. But you've got Google Maps, so you can always find your way back. So, um, and I, I mean, the bits of London that I love definitely aren't the tourist sides of things. So I think now the reason I've stayed here so long is I've discovered kind of the other side of London. There's tourist London, then there's local London. Yeah. And you feel like whenever someone comes over here and you, you're shepherding them around, you want them to enjoy the authentic experience. Mm-hmm. So when people say, oh, we want to go up the London Eye, you think, that's great. <laughs> you, you go do that and then I'll co- you know, yep. go show you something worthwhile. I've got a friend who, um, when he did his OE, he was going to move to Berlin. And at the time, I didn't have many friends in London. So I desperately wanted to alter that plan and make him move to London instead. Uh, He came over, we had half a day together, and I took him to Broadway Market and Shoreditch and, you know, all those kind of hipster cool places, and he fell in love with it, and he's now been living here for five years. But that's the difference in experience that when you come to London as a tourist and you see Westminster and maybe Hyde Park, and it's just, yeah, completely different city. What about your first few months here? There are so many stories about Kiwis who come here and those first 6, 12 months are hell on earth. What was your experience? I arrived on April Fool's Day, which was... That's... (laughs) Questionable day to make that life choice. 
I think I did the same thing that a lot of Kiwis do in that you think you're going to be a completely different person. And part of that is the OE myth that we've got at home. When you hear people talking about their OEs, they say, it was life-changing and I travelled to Europe all the time and, you know, had all these amazing friends and blah, blah, blah. And so you kind of think, well, when I get to London, I'm going to be um, brave, have loads of friends, I'm going to do whatever. Then you get here and you realise you're the same person, except all of a sudden you're missing your entire support network. You don't recognise the brands in the supermarket, so you've got to think a lot harder. It's really cold and really expensive. So that was fun. I didn't have a disastrous entry into London because when my sister was living here, so I stayed with her for the first couple of weeks and then I managed to find a short-term let in a flat which if anyone's moving to London highly highly recommend just getting a flat for two months it allows you to kind of get settled and get a better idea of where you actually want to be living and then I managed to find a job within six weeks two months as well it was a relatively good entry into London but it was definitely still culture shock (laughs) so what are you doing now now I'm a business analyst So I spend all my days buried in spreadsheets, which I love. And I'm a blogger and I've got my own jewellery business as well. When you Google Kiwi in London, your blog is often one of the first two uh, results to crop up. How did Runaway Kiwi start? So my first flat in London was right at the bottom of the Northern Line in Collierswood. I live there. I've lived there. It's it's a weird but... (laughs) So many people, when they think about London, they think about townhouses and, yeah. But Collingswood is like the strange little alternate universe, which doesn't look like London, but it doesn't look like anywhere else either. And the kind of high point is that there's a really big Marks and Spencers down down the road. That's literally, so I kind of found myself in Collingswood, for those who don't live in London, takes 45 minutes to get into the centre, as well as costing, what, two pounds or something on the tube. So I would commute every day into work. Come the weekend, I did not want to pay £2 to get into London and did not want to spend kind of an hour getting into the city to go and do some London activity. So I found myself sitting at home every weekend going to Marks and Spencers for a terrible flat white. Maybe four months into this, I just had this realisation that I was finding London not incredibly hard, but moving to London, you sacrifice a lot. You sacrifice your family kind of comfort, sunshine, and so I sacrificed all this, and yet what I was doing with my time was sitting on my bed in Collier's Wood, going to Marks and Spencers, and so I had this realisation that I needed, if I was going to do London, I needed to actually enjoy it, there's no point sacrificing unless you're getting something out, out of it. I had never read blogs before, the internet was a new thing back in 2012, so I don't know, I still don't know quite where I got the idea, but All of a sudden, I thought, I need something to get me out of the house. Blogging is a way to do it. So that day, I set up my blog, uh, chose Runaway Kiwi because it was the only URL that I could get. And it 100% worked. It got me out of the house every single weekend, made me go out and explore London. Almost all of my friends have come through blogging. It's an amazing community. So yeah, having a blog has totally made my experience here. Did you have a kind of vision for what you thought it would be, or was it just a case of, I just need to create, create, create? Yeah, yeah no vision whatsoever. At that point, because I'd, I'd never read blogs, I had no idea that in London particularly, it's a full industry. You know, you can, 
as a blogger, if you wanted to, you know, not pay for a meal out ever through restaurant reviews and you can be a full-time blogger, you can make money from it. None of that occurred to me. So it never occurred to have a plan at all. Yeah, I just basically started writing and for the first year I was pretty much anonymous on it. I didn't say my name. I had the social media handle, so I promoted the posts, but it wasn't, it was still quite divorced or anonymous. It's slowly become a lot more personal and um, a lot more fun. Was that just a, a natural progression or did you feel that the more that you posted about yourself, the more that you were engaging an audience, you were creating something more authentic? Kind of happened by accident in that I don't, again, because I didn't have a conscious plan about the blog. I'd just started writing in this style and I think I kind of wrote personal things. So I wrote about emotions and how I was feeling, but I didn't write, my name's Rebecca and this is where I live and this is my job. And and so then on my first year anniversary of blogging, oh, because also during that first year I made the questionable decision of uh, blogging every single day, because apparently I can't do things by halves. Most people blog a couple of times a week. So after a year, I wrote this big post about how I was feeling about London, what blogging meant to me, and I put a photo of myself in it, mostly because I just happened to have a nice photo of myself (laughs) standing at the top of one new change that my parents had taken. And so I put this photo in there, and all of a sudden, I started getting these messages going, oh my god, it's so brave that you're not doing it. Uh, anonymously anymore and I was like I was I doing it anonymously I okay sorry oops <laughs> didn't mean to do that totally intended for that to happen <laughs> so what what was the moment when you realized well, this is actually a hit when I started getting really emotional messages from people so I wrote particularly in the early days I wrote a lot about how I was feeling as an expat and how kind of those feelings of failure because you're doing London wrong is actually complete bullshit you can do London however you want it means something different to everyone and started writing posts about how to survive as an expat in London and I started getting these messages from people just saying your blog post got me through those first few weeks or I'm sitting here crying but I read your blog post and I don't feel so alone anymore or I'm about to move over and all the stress has gone away because you've told me I don't need to stress about it so I started getting these messages and all of a sudden realized, oh, people read this and it means something to them. I particularly enjoyed a post you, I think it was, if it wasn't your latest one, it was certainly the one before uh, the bucket list, <laughs> which for those who haven't read is literally a list of different kinds of buckets. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's a great example of me. You know, that's a reason why I can never become a professional blogger. Around New Year's, there's always just this plethora of 2017 highlights and my bucket list for 2018 which is actually great you know some good content but I was just so sick of them and I was like I'm gonna write a list of actual buckets and by the way some very cool buckets out there yeah there's collapsible ones there's what was it a 400 pound silver bucket from Harrods yeah great buckets yeah 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 it's I, I did not realise, and yet I, I should realise this, because, you know, if the internet has taught me anything, it's that people are doing everything to anything. Yeah, I think that's definitely one thing that the internet has taught me, is that you can, if you've got a passion for something, you can make it work. And I read an amazing article about a guy who had started a blog about reviewing mattresses, which doesn't seem like a big Thing. He was making, I think, six million US dollars a year from it, which is just bizarre. 
It's a great article though because he then got sued by two leading mattress companies for essentially insider trading in the mattress world. It was incredible. You don't want to piss off Big Mattress. <laughs> no, right? Right. You know, they don't take anything <laughs> they, lying down. They absolutely do not. <laughs> I want to ask you about your jewellery line. So how did that come about? How did that start? So back home, all throughout university, I worked at Walker & Hall in Newmarket. Um, so from kind of that point, loved jewellery, loved diamonds, love all the things. And when, I think it was my second year in London... I had this idea that I could start selling some of my own jewellery because, again, job paid me nothing. needed more money to be able to eat because at that point, I my food for lunch and dinner for a week, my budget was £8. I made it work, but, you know, I also wanted more money. And so I did three designs, got them manufactured in Birmingham and then sold them through Etsy. And... That was great. It definitely, it basically helped me survive in that second year. But kind of, it all petered out after a while. And then last year, I had the idea of, I want to try it again. And yet this time I want to actually do it how I wanted to do it four years ago. But the technology wasn't available. Because what I wanted to do is custom engraving, essentially. Because at the moment, if you want to get something engraved, you can go to the you know, local key cutters and they'll do it in handwriting style. Or you can get things stamped. And stamping has a certain look to it and it's not a look I particularly like. And so what I needed was an engraving machine. Which again, four years ago, not possible. Now, however, I managed to source the smallest available commercial engraving machine in South Korea and then imported it to London. I know. I mean, spending your life savings importing an engraving machine from South Korea isn't the life choice everyone should do. Uh, so it's kind of the size of an old school PC monitor. Okay. So I, I realise we're on a podcast and I'm making shapes with my hands, but that's yeah, not helpful. Yeah. Old, wide, old, yeah. High. old yeah. school PC monitor-ish. Yeah. I'd, I'd written a business plan because, again, I was spending all of my savings. And as anyone who's lived in London knows, savings are not easy to come by. So I was spending all my savings on this engraving machine. So I needed awesome business plan to make sure I was at least going to get my money back from it. And so I figured it out that I was going to get my money back in nine months or something like that. So I started this business, and if you haven't seen it, so my business is called Zealand Heart, which, yes, that's a pun, because Zealand is Zealand. I'm from yeah. New Zealand. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Great pun. <laughs> uh, and, and they're small sterling silver flat disc pendants with loads of sayings engraved on them. And they're kind of meant to be like those little personal mantras that – you know, I think probably every six months I think I'm going to get a tattoo with this on it because it means so much to me. I don't have any tattoos because I change my mind every six months. But the idea was that these were something just little and personal that you could carry around with you all the time. And so I bought this engraving machine, you know, sourced all the metals and everything, started engraving, and it's been more successful than I ever could have imagined. So I managed to pay my back, pay myself back the engraving machine within two months I thought it was gonna take nine and it's funny because the bit that I enjoy about it it's the same bit that I enjoy about my blog that it's the 
hearing from people and what it means to them is what is the thing that I love and the reasons they buy these pendants or buy them for their friends it's very emotional and I love it (laughs) is there such a thing as being a proper Londoner I have been thinking about this huge amount recently because I've been here for six years now and that is longer than I ever thought I would six years is kind of a weird milestone because it's it's longer than I've spent on most things in my life. It's longer than I spent at university. It's longer than I spent at high school. So it all of a sudden feels like I've committed to London, like it's been an active choice, but it really hasn't. It's kind of just something that I keep doing because it works. And I still think of myself as a Kiwi first. I still think of myself as a Kiwi living in London, which means that I don't really think of myself as a true Londoner. I'm more than a tourist, less than a Londoner, if that makes sense. Particularly in London, there are so many places to explore and there are so many parts of the city that I still haven't ever been to. I only went to Portobello Road Market a couple of weeks before Christmas. You know, I've actually never been to this area, never been to Victoria Park. <laughs> I love Victoria Park, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I don't feel like I've got ownership over any part of the city, so I know I call myself a Londoner, but I don't really feel it. Long-term tourist, is that a thing? I think so, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Go with that. Do you feel that you have changed and grown over the past six years because you've lived here? Hugely. London's been the absolute making of me. It's been the making of me because it's forced me to be independent, so I hadn't... Back home, I lived with mum and dad all throughout uni, so moving to London was the first time I went flatting, the first time I had to figure out bills and kind of all of those lovely things. It's also been the making of me career-wise after the disastrous tax accounting blip. You know, it's taken me six years in London, but I finally figured out that, yes, I'm a business analyst and that's what I want to do, what I enjoy. I think everyone should live overseas at some point, if possible. I know there's a lot of logistical reasons why people can't, but there is definitely something about being away from any expectations on you like in London no one knows who you are at all you know you can go on the tube never going to recognize anyone it's fine and even though like there weren't huge you know my parents never said oh you've got to go and be this person or do this there are expectations that you kind of just internalize over time so I've got to go to university I've got to get a good job I've got to do this with my life or that with my life But moving to London, it allowed me to figure out actually what's important to me and what do I like doing, you know. Back home, throughout uni, went to clubs. Turns out, hate clubbing with a passion. Why would I do that? London has definitely let me figure out who I am and it constantly challenges me. Probably three times a year, have a complete existential crisis and go, what should I be doing with my life? Where should I be living? And I kind of think all those things, working through all those problems, just helps you grow as a person. So yeah, highly encourage everyone to live away from home, if at all possible. Doesn't have to be London, but London's quite easy because they speak English. <laughs> it's not necessarily true of Australia, for example, exactly. where they English-speaking country, my ass. <laughs> One of the things which, uh, if you if you read Runaway Kiwi, you'll note that you are something of a a coffee fiend I am I am gonna I'll put you on the spot right now what is the best coffee in London that's hard 
And I've probably got two categories. I've got coffee that comes with brunch. So you've got a brunch category and then you've just got a pure coffee category. In the coffee category, love Brooklyn Coffee, which is on Commercial Road in Shoreditch. And I love Proof Rock, which is on Leather Lane, which is kind of near Chancery Lane. Also near Hatton Gardens, if you like jewellery and diamonds. Brunch picks would be Milk and Vellum. If you haven't been, you have to go. They do week, weekend special pancakes that will probably change your life, make you weep tears of joy. You do have to be, get there at like 9am to get a table though. Or Sundays in Islington is amazing for breakfast as well. As a fan of pancakes, that sounds like my idea of heaven. Oh my gosh, the last ones that I had there were marshmallow toasted onto the plate with Turkish delight, roast peaches and a pistachio cream and uh, candy floss on top. <laughs> you just said three things I didn't know could coexist. That... I know. It will change your life, I promise. That is amazing. And they actually do good coffee as well. So prior to moving over here, I didn't drink coffee at all. <gasps> I know, I know. I, I sort of slowly started getting into it. So, you know, I was like a teenage... Teenager, and I started with mockers as well, and you know, which is kind of like you know, mockers are a gateway drug. I think everyone starts with mockers. Yeah, exactly. It started out with mockers, and then it's as my my sister would say, "Oh, you've started drinking adult coffee now." Like, yeah, you're a real boy. Yeah, real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to the extent now that I have opinions about different kinds of Excellent. coffee. Excellent. And one of the things that I noticed back home, you know, Evil One says New Zealand flat whites so good. That sounded almost a little Trumpish. Like, oh, so it's, it's just so good. So good is so the flat white, so good. Long blacks, fake news. Absolutely. But what I found is every single flat white I had, almost with the exception of one, scorched. Is, is there something, have the English overtaken, are the English better at flat whites than the Antipodeans? That's what I'm getting at. No, they aren't. Um, and the reason I say that is because, so again, go back to the university exchange, which would have been in 2008. It might not have been somewhere around there. Flat white wasn't in London yet. And I remember finding in the six months I was here, I found one place that did a flat white and it was terrible. What's changed now is all of the Kiwis and Aussies have moved to London and started cafes. So you'll find the majority of the good coffee, uh, if you dig back, is actually, it's because it's owned by Kiwis or Aussies. So we've taught them how to do it. We've taught them how to do it and they've probably poached our best people right. in order to do it. <laughs> that would explain it so all the good coffee makers have made their way over here they've yep. taught the English how to do it and now because it seems weird now to go to any, any cafe in London and not see flat white on the menu one of the things I love about London is that it it builds its own little industries so I'm not sure if you've been to the coffee festival that happens every year in London but it's something that just could not happen in New Zealand because of the number of people it's just not scalable and yet once you've kind of introduced the concept of a flat white to the English, all of a sudden, with the number of millions of people in London, you can have events every year, you can have competitions, you can have people blogging about coffee, and so it's so much easier to get better because of the scale. It just sort of reminds me of something that someone told me, that if you move to London and you Google random thing you're interested in, London, there is a thriving and growing community of people who are into that. Yep, 100%. The other week I remembered that I liked improv comedy and apparently I've forgotten for the last five years, but we used to go, there used to be an improv comedy team in New Zealand that did shows maybe once every 
four months or something. And here I googled improv comedy and there's literally I don't know, 10 different places you can go any night of the week relatively affordable it's london so nothing's properly affordable but that's the difference exactly like i think london does uh, just you know, by virtue of its size and everything about that sort of encourages that competition and that constant well, I, don't want to, I don't want to say churn because that's not quite the right word a couple of years ago i did a big survey through my blog it was i think it's called like the big expat survey it was about 10 different questions but one of them was if you could use one word to describe london what would it be I think about 80% of the responses, the one word they used was exhausting. Which is really interesting because it's something that people are constantly tired in London and constantly doing too much and it's a common theme that if you want to organise drinks with friends, normally it either has to be tomorrow or a month away. That's just how London operates, which depending on how you want to live your life can be amazing or can be not so great. <laughs> I know there are so many young people from small town New Zealand who think, oh yeah, I'll head to London, yeah, nah, that'll be awesome, and then absolutely hate it. I think part of it's circumstances. Even, for example, the difference between being on a two-year visa and a five-year visa. Just mentally, it's such a different perspective on it. You know, people on a two-year visa cram so much into that two years. Whereas, you know, I was on five-year visas, so there was so much of London that I'm like, I'll get to that at some point. I don't need to do it. And the difference between people who move over with a group of friends or fall into a job straight, straight away, even if you arrive in summer or winter, can totally dictate whether you have this awesome London experience or if you find it really underwhelming. But a huge part of it is just how you operate, what makes you happy. If what makes you happy is a slower pace of life, London's never going to work for you. It's, it, it could, but I doubt it. For me, I love cities, so that's already a big tick. I get huge amount of enjoyment from culture, so you know, Auckland's got the art gallery. Here, there's quite a few. Um, it just comes down to what suits you, and I think part of the problem is that as Kiwis with the OE, we think that London should suit us. We should love London. You don't have to. If you don't like it, leave. That's cool. Don't feel bad if it's not right for you. But definitely the people who seem to stay here longer are the ones who just enjoy the pace and the activities and can bear winter for nine months a year where it gets dark at three in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, that is always the best. It's the, it's the weirdest thing. When you first arrive, you're like, that, that's quite funny. And then you realise you go to work in the dark and if you don't get out of the office at lunchtime, you don't actually see daylight. Oh, it's so funny because everyone goes, um, when they fir that first year, every single person says, oh, winter's not that bad. And the bizarre thing is it's actually not. It's not super cold. It's not, I mean, it, it rains, but it's more that it's just grey and miserable and dark. That's actually the problem rather than the weather itself. Top tip for anyone moving to London December, the weather's bad, but it's totally bearable. London in December is magical because it's Christmas, there are lights everywhere, and you're drunk all the time. The real problem is January, February, March. So if you're going to move to London, book a holiday during those months. Christmas in New Zealand doesn't make sense. <gasps> oh my god, it doesn't! It doesn't. It's, so it's, it's weird. You're driving down the road and there's like a guy 
in shorts and jandals selling Christmas trees and you're like, what are you doing, dude? It's like July. Wait, what? Hang on. Yeah. No, it's December. This doesn't make sense. One moment of my first Christmas in London that all of a sudden Christmas carols made sense. Which, back home, I never thought they didn't make sense. But all of a sudden, singing about cold at Christmas, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Christmas decorations and Christmas lights. And if you think about it, they all have that kind of cold motif about them. You know, yeah. they, they, they suit a colder climate. Absolutely. So when you see them in New Zealand, you're like, this, what, wait, what? No. The only part of it, the holidays, that doesn't make sense in the UK, for me, is still New Year's Eve. In New Zealand, you can go to Rhythm and Vines or whatever, but you don't need to plan anything because actually just going to the waterfront in Auckland or a park or a beach, it's fine because it's warm outside. Here, going out at New Year's seems like the worst thing in the whole world because it's cold, probably going to be raining, which means you've got to pay a lot of money to be inside somewhere. Even going to the fireworks, apparently you've got to queue for like six hours to get into the fireworks. It's just a logistical nightmare. To say nothing of uh, once that's all over, actually getting home again. Oh, you've got to get home. This is, you know, going back to the uh, word of London being exhausting, you know, I think absolutely nothing about commuting for an hour to go and have coffee with someone. That's just, that's just London. You know, if I go onto uh, City Mapper and it says it'll only take half an hour to get there, I'm like, oh, easy. That's, you know, no problem at all. Whereas in Auckland, if I had to go half an hour to see someone, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Let's meet halfway in between. You have a, an interest in the art world. Yes. What is your favourite museum here? Oh, that's mean. And um, the thing that I love, and it's such, it's something you could only do in London, and this is because, so in London, the museums are free. You pay to go to churches, but museums are free. In France, it's the opposite. I 100% love that I can, if I've got 10 minutes spare, walk into the National Gallery, go and stand in front of a Van Gogh, and then walk out. I think that is just one of the most magical, incredible experiences that you can't, you literally can't have anywhere else. And that was the thing, my first year in London, I was making no money at all and paying almost all of it in rent. And yet I could still live this luxury life in a way because I could go, that's one of the reasons I started going to cafes so often is because for two pounds or two pounds 50, you could sit in an amazing cosmopolitan cafe for an hour and not feel like you were missing out on an experience because you were completely skinned. And then you could wander down the road to an art gallery and walk in and spend three hours there and not have spent any money at all. That's something that is just so magical. I want to ask you about, because we sort of touched on this before, like the idea of being a New Zealander over here and then casting your eye 18,000 kilometres downward. 18,324 kims. Not that I'm counting. Not that you're counting. No, no. Just a mere 30 hours of travel. What do you think about when you think about New Zealand now? For me, New Zealand's still all about family. My entire family's there. And that's the hardest thing about living on the other side of the world is being away from them for, I mean, the big milestones, but also just every day. You know, now that I've been here six years you kind of you change a lot but the biggest thing that I think of when I think of New Zealand is just it's so easy like I've still got a car back home and you know you've never known the struggle of standing in a supermarket going I really want to buy that third bottle of wine because it's on offer but I've got to carry it home 
Whereas in New Zealand, you'd go, I'll buy the third, fourth and fifth bottle of wine because it's going in the boot of the car. (laughs) As I said before, you know, I'm always having an existential crisis of where I should be and what I should be doing. And I know that New Zealand is theoretically an awesome option, but I do know that I'd be giving up a lot of the things that I enjoy about my current life if I ever did move back. Do you anticipate there will come a point where you think, yeah, I'm done. London, we're good. I, yeah, I, I think it definitely will at some point. If you'd asked me a couple of years ago before Brexit, I might have a different answer. But I've spent the last two years hearing immigrants are bad, immigrants are bad, immigrants are bad. And, you know, for virtue of being from one of the white colonies, apparently I'm an expat, not an immigrant. I've had the same thing too. It drives me crazy. It drives me insane too. And so I... Uh, you know, in the eyes of the UK, I am acceptable and I've now got indefinitely to remain, so it's not a, a visa problem. But when you've spent that long in a country, and Brexit's been the number one news story, apart from Trump, but Brexit's been the number one news story for a while, and the main message is you, you foreigners don't belong here, which for me has so changed how I see myself living in this country long term. I arrived in 2012 when. The summer was amazing, and it was the Olympics, and everyone was happy. Everyone was smiling on the tube. There were um, volunteers on the tube just to make sure everyone knew where they were going. And, you know, I I still have hopes that Brexit will stop and we'll go back to being nice. But if it does continue, it it changes how I feel about this place. It's the weird thing when you can see the the Brexit vote map and every single urban centre so adamant of voting to remain and that there is you know what's been coined little england saying to hell with this absolutely and it's the you know it's the tale of two cities what that means to be a quote-unquote expat in the country which is having this massive existential crisis about who it is and what it is and what it wants to be is interesting in and of itself I too have had that, you're a Kiwi, you're part of the Commonwealth, you can stay here as long as you want. And you think, well, actually, no, I can't. Up until, you know, recently, the major benefit was I didn't have to pay a surcharge for the NHS. (laughs) Now that's changed. That's changed. And, you know, I find it unbelievable. So I've got ancestry visas through my grandmother. So my grandmother was born just outside Glasgow, grew up in an orphanage, and after the World War II, uh, hopped on a boat for six weeks or however long it took, uh, moved to New Zealand and married my grandfather. So I am a Scottish through descent person. I had to pay £3,000 and take a life in the UK test to be able to stay here to get indefinitely to remain. For anyone who hasn't done the life in the UK test, please go and look at some of the questions because they are just... Horrific. You have to learn UK history back to the Stone Age. You have to learn all about the Vikings and Oliver Cromwell. And it's the most pointless exercise ever. Which in it of itself is kind of annoying because basically if you are university educated and used to studying, you will pass. To be completely cynical, those whom English is not the first language. Absolutely. And funniest bit is that the test was written in 2013. And the questions have not changed since, which means there's an entire chapter you have to learn about our great partnership with the EU and how amazing the EU is, all the benefits that it brings. And 
I had to do this test. I'm a Kiwi and I'm so strongly identify with being a Kiwi, but my ancestry is Scotland and my, it's Scotland on all sides. I'm too much of a foreigner, so I've got to take the Life in the UK test, but I'm enough of a UK person to not be included in the Brexit hatred, which it, it it's such a bizarre situation. The crazy thing is, I don't think we've reached, uh, you know, the, the nadir of how cray it's going to get. No. It's 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 going to be yeah. Once that uh, the two year time limit is up, is up, and presumably nothing is going to change because nothing <laughs> don't even have a plan for getting the plan started. No. Uh, things are going to get well. Would yeah. You? But that's a really really interesting point. Is that so? Every single expert is predicting a massive recession for the UK because of the amount of money that Brexit's going to cost and what a poor decision it is. So if all of a sudden jobs become really hard uh, to come by in the UK and we think back to the recession last time and it you know, culled so many small and medium businesses, um, that will totally change what it's like to be a Kiwi in London. Uh, it's already quite hard... Well, it's not hard to get a job. It's hard to get a job that you like. And it's hard to find the the network and all of that fun stuff. But if the country is thrown into a big recession, the jobs are going to be a lot more scarce. And that would be an indicator that you kind of, I might need to move home. But it's just, it's bizarre that it kind of, the reason that I would move home is all down to racism. <laughs> Great. Yeah. <laughs> Last time I was in New Zealand was just before Trump got elected in. And I, living in the UK, you read stories about Trump and you feel it quite keenly. It feels really real. And you look at all the protests that have happened and it feels like it's happening to you. In New Zealand, I remember sitting down, having the exact same type of conversation that I was having over here, but it felt so much more theoretical. We were talking about this thing happening in a far off, distant land, and which that's that's kind of I guess the point with New Zealand is that it's not that you don't have the same ideas or the same news or access for, to information, but you it feels so much more distant. You know, London, for better or worse, still feels like the center of the world, which can be great because you are living in the most exciting city in the world New Yorkers I will fight you on that (laughs) but you do feel like you are in the middle of a whole bunch of different threats you know you look at terrorism and which that's been happening a lot more recently and you kind of got so you've got terrorism from one side you've got Trump from another you've got Scotland wanting to go off and be a different country Uh, and then from Europe you've got the refugee crisis and it all feels personal it all feels like it's happening to you that you should be doing something about it that you can't just ignore it and that's it's still happening in the world and you could argue that it's something happening in america is just as divorced from the uk as something you know as from new zealand but it feels more personal here i get the sense that from for so many New Zealanders, the rest of the world is something that happens on TV. And reality is whatever insane thing like Mike Hosking said, you yeah. know, or whatever, you know, whatever's blowing up on Trade Me. You know, that that's yeah. that's reality. That's New Zealand. That's the world. Whereas, yeah, over here you feel it so keenly. 
it's really interesting. I read a, um, or it might have been on a podcast the other day, that humans, we are meant to live in a village-sized area. So we are meant to know kind of 100 people, and that's the scale of disaster we're meant to be able to cope with. Like, you know, if you think about 100 people, you know, that one's sick, that one's having a baby, I don't know. That's what we as humans can cope with. What we're dealing with now is global disasters and global problems, and our brains just can't cope with it. We're not meant to deal with a 24-hour news cycle where you hear about every bad thing happening everywhere. Yeah. But even with that's b- bizarre how jaded I am to terrorism now. So I remember when the Paris attacks happened, which was two years ago, three years ago, and that was, you know, sitting on my couch, you know, terrorism did its job, I was terrified. And going, well, how do, how do we pick up pieces from this? How do we carry on? Terrorist attacks that happen now, so London Bridge, for example, which is a hell of a lot closer than Paris, you know, and go to cafes around there all the time and Borough Market. And I just don't... It, I have a very London reaction to it now. It's just like, oh, okay, well, that's an inconvenience because the tube's closed. Yeah. Which is a weird twist of the mind that I'm so immune to <laughs> terrorist attacks now. This is the thing that amazed me the most. Well, for one, it was when, you know, when the London Bridge terror, terror attacks happened, it was turning on BBC News and seeing you know, ambulances and you know, police cars driving down the road. I used to walk down every mm-hmm. single day and being like, I recognise that area. That's so surreal. Yeah. Obviously, the attack, horrific in and of itself. The thing that amazed me most was within, I want to say within 24 hours, if 48 hours at most, there were barriers up mm-hmm. uh, and things lining the bridges to protect yep. pedestrians. And I thought, that's amazing. Nothing happens that fast in London yeah. ever. <laughs> this happened within the space of two days. Yep. It's, it's that the concrete barriers, um, would you get anyone who doesn't live in London? So two of the, the biggest weapons that have been used in the last, in the Westminster attacks and in the London Bridge attacks have been cars or trucks being driven into pedestrians. And the biggest change to the London cityscape in the last well at least since I've been here is all of a sudden you see these giant concrete barriers in between the um, the road and the footpath but even that I, I I said this at work and it didn't go down too well so we'll see how it goes here I would prefer a car and a knife being used as weapons any day over guns and bombs and I know Manchester had a bomb and but you look at the devastation caused by you know, the shootings that happen every single day in America compared to the number of people affected in Westminster and London Bridge. And yes, it's scary because anything driving down the road is a weapon, but also the damage that a car can do is nothing like a semi-automatic weapon. In New Zealand, you know that it's earthquakes and volcanoes that can kill you. And when my parents lived in London in the 70s, it was the IRA nothing's changed it's just the consequence of being in a big city and you just hope like hell that it's not you you know it's so sad that I've got a a text thread with uh, my family and all I use that text thread for is telling them when you wake up you will see something really scary has happened in London don't worry I'm safe and I also use it for mocking my sister and say signing off by saying love the favorite daughter but you know you've got to keep things light in terrorism it's also interesting because we've got the option of going back to New Zealand 
which if you are a true Londoner and this is where you live and this is where your family is, you've just got a deal. You have written quite extensively about advice you'd give to people thinking about moving to London. If you could condense that down into three big pieces of advice, what would they be? First one is do it. I think everyone has this idea that they might do an OE one day, but they've got to wait for the perfect timing. They've got to wait for the perfect bank balance or the perfect relationship or whatever. If you want to do it, just do it. There's never going to be a perfect time. And your experience will be what it is. Just get the visa, book the plane ticket and go. My second is London, you have to make it work. If you just sit back and wait for good things to happen, they absolutely will not. For me, in my first year, that meant booking theatre tickets even six months in advance so I could get the £12 ticket right at the back. Uh, But you have to go out and make London happen, Um, which is really hard, particularly if you don't have friends. It's really scary to be able to go and book things by yourself and go out and do it, but that's going to be the only way to really love London. And my third, don't be so hard on yourself. You're not doing it wrong. If you get tired, that's okay. Chill out. Nobody has any savings. Yeah, I I think, and that's probably the danger with social media these days. When you look at it, you think everyone is doing everything well. Everyone's in a happy long-term relationship. Everyone's buying a house. Everyone's traveling every weekend. And that's a total lie. Yeah. You know, you only put on social media what is perfect. Um, and because you are looking at 100 people's social media, it's giving you the impression everyone else has their life sorted out. They absolutely do not. So chill out. Don't be so hard on yourself. If you're not enjoying it, you don't have to do it. You can go home. You can go on to the next adventure. It's all good. My thanks to Rebecca Blandford. And if you want to find out more about Rebecca's musings, and I highly recommend you do because they are so good, so good, such good musings, so good, visit www.runawaykiwi.com. And if you want to follow To Londoner on Facebook, we are at To Londoner. And we're also on Twitter at To Londoner. I am nothing if not original. Tune in next time for more fun and frivolity here on To Londoner. I feel like I've said that enough. All right. To Londoner. To Londoner. To Londoner. To Londoner. It's in your head now. Yes.